0: I had Ryan Packmeyer on the show. We had a great conversation about brewing big beers. In that conversation, we talked a bit about brewing in barrels, but I really wanted to get Ryan back on the show to do a deep dive into brewing in barrels. So today, we have Ryan on the show, and we are going to talk about the tips and tricks to brewing in a barrel today on Homebrewing DIY. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the show that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this podcast covers it all. Today, we're talking with Ryan Packmeyer, and we're going to do a deep dive into tips and tricks for selecting and brewing in barrels. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's because of you that we can come to you every week and still keep this show free. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. We still have our special going on for the first 20 patrons at the $1 level. You're going to get access to our RSS feed that is ad-free and sometimes comes early. If I feel like lately I've been kind of getting it in on the on the last minute. But if we do the show early, we do put it in and you get the show immediately for being a patron. Another special we have is if you give it the $5 level, we're going to give you a really cool gift from Scrubber Duckies. I still have a couple of those left. So hop onto patreon.com forward slash DIY and give today. Another great way to support the show is to write a review about us over at podchaser.com or on Apple podcasts. Your ratings and reviews help others find the show. And I'm not even going to ask for a five-star review. If you have something critical to say, we definitely want to hear it. It definitely helps us improve the show. And of course, one of the best ways to support the show is to head over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and use our sponsor links. If you click on the link for Brewfather or Adventures in Homebrewing, your prices stay the same, but it lets them know that we sent you, and they then in turn support the show. Now I'd like to hop into a bit of feedback I got a great email from Greg Weeder, all the way from Australia and he sent me a message about a week ago and his message says this. I started listening to your podcast lately right around the same time that I've been getting into some brewery DIY electronics. I recently built some ice spindles and was wondering what else I can make. Ferment track with some BrewPi ESP8266s look like the next logical step and with what you learn from your builds i would like to pick your brain a bit i was going to install ferment Track on a linux box that i already had on all the time it's a media server so no need to power up another device so question one any downside to installing ferment Track on a desktop rather than a raspberry pi and then question two I've seen a bunch of builds for the ESP8266, but nothing in depth enough for me to follow a step-by-step. A lot of the info is just parts list and a rough description. Where I can find where can I find a really easy simple build that I can follow a step-by-step guide? I'm just looking for to have 3 ESP8266 with two or three probes on each one to control three different chambers. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Cheers, Greg. I then replied to Greg and I said, first, thanks for listening to the show, Greg. You can absolutely install Fermentrack on any other Debian-based Linux device. But here's where you may run into some issues. If you have it running another web server, so for example, let's say you're running Apache for something else, you're going to run into issues because you're going to have a conflict running two web servers, maybe running two different systems i see that happen all the time and people run into issues but here's my advice i'd use a raspberry raspberry pi zero w the reason is there's just super low power it's going to run off of a micro usb it's actually less power than you're probably going to use charging your cell phone and you're going to have it use it basically have access to that device doing one thing and i just feel like it's kind of a better way when it comes to running your fermentation chamber Also, if you head over to fermentrack.com, they have really good documentation. And here's the other piece I would go is if you're looking for a step-by-step guide, just head over to pcbs.io. And I actually sent him the link straight to the PCB for Fermentrack and you can just see the wiring diagram right there. So it's going to tell you everything you need to build and how to put it together right into that PCB. The only part that it doesn't show you is how to wire the plug for the high voltage part, which is pretty self-explanatory. If you're doing a project like this, it would make total sense. But other than that, uh, my setup is the original Arduino setup. I don't actually use the ASP8266, but still, it's going to be a lot easier if you use that pre-made PCB. So I'd love to thank Greg for giving me some feedback and, uh, you know, keep it coming. I think that if you want to ask a question, talk to us about anything, just send us an email to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer or head over to our website and fill out the contact form. The last thing I'd like to share during our announcements is that you can always follow us on social media. Head over to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Look for the handle at homebrewingdiy, all one word. We'd love to have you follow us, and your engagement is always appreciated. So now that we're done with all of that, let's just hop into today's episode. We're going to talk to Ryan Packmeyer today about brewing with barrels. I'd like to welcome Ryan to the show, and let's just jump right into a bit about why don't, why don't you tell us a bit about your history with barrels and a bit about what we'll talk about today.
1: Barrel tips, barrel aging wood guide for beer. Um, first off, I'm not an expert. I'm not a professional. I am a, you know, dedicated hobbyist. Don't take every piece of advice I have here as gospel. Um, you know, kind of use my advice as a guide for your own projects or inspiration for your own projects. Um, Experience-wise, I've been involved in, I don't know, probably a couple dozen barrel projects at this point, and probably 10 or 15 oak alternative projects um, over about 14 years of brewing. Um, These tips are mostly a result of my own research um, online, talking with professional brewers, uh, as well as trial and error, Um, when I have a beer I really like or it's really different in a really positive way. I really try to seek out and find out what that brewer did differently, um, whether it's a home brewer or a professional brewer. So, um, as a result, I've found a lot of little tips and tricks, um, that a lot of them have worked really well. Um, I've had plenty of successes, um, won plenty of medals, had compliments from brewers, and I've had plenty of failures as well, dumping batches that, didn't come out right, or uh, barrels that unintentionally went wild. And so my goal with this is this guide is to really give you a lot of things to hopefully minimize the chances that you end up dumping a batch or not being happy with your batch, and maximize the chances that you have uh, a really successful beer, a really successful experience with your barrel-edged beers. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on clean beers today, um, and primarily whiskey barrel-aged beers even though I'll talk a little bit about wine and other spirits. Um, I've been in a number of sour barrel projects, I like sour beer, but my experience with that is not great enough to really put it into a guide. Um, I would use resources such as Milk the Funk for sour barrel tips, um, But so I'll be focusing on clean beers that's what I've done a lot more of. That's why I feel like I have more knowledge to share and maybe a few unique insights that um, you don't necessarily get from 10, 20, 30, even an hour of Googling around um, searching for this. So um, without further ado, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about barrel aged beer.
0: Great. I, I think the first place we should start when we dive into it is how do you select a barrel or figure out what is a good barrel to use?
1: I have two rules when selecting barrels. The first rule is I only use freshly dumped barrels uh, from distilleries or wineries. Uh, This requires planning ahead. It ensures you're getting a clean barrel with much less risk of wild yeast. Um, I've had a lot of bad experiences with wild yeast in barrels because the barrel wasn't freshly dumped. It sat around for weeks, even if it's covered, even if you kind of clean it beforehand. I found that nothing ensures getting a good, clean, full barrel flavor than getting a freshly dumped barrel. Um, I always have beer ready to put in the barrel the day I get it, Uh, or if it's second use, I have beer ready the day I'm going to empty the previous one. Uh, I just don't want to leave the barrel empty. Either want it to have spirits in it when it's at the distillery, or as soon as those spirits are gone, the same day you want to put beer in it, ideally. And when you empty your beer, if you want to use it again, you want to put beer in it again the same day. For both of these points, you can find kind of instructions online on how to clean barrels that have sat around, rehydrate ones that are dry, and so on and so forth, but really I just would, I can't re- reiterate enough, I wouldn't bother, it's too risky, buying a barrel for one or two batches of beer is already an expensive cost to your to your uh, total project, so I really wouldn't, uh, I'd wait if I had to, I wouldn't buy a barrel that's been sitting around for three, four, five weeks. Um, or that you don't know the source on, because again, you, you know you don't want to spend 100, 150 bucks on a barrel and just wait six, eight, ten months, and the beer comes out and it's got you know wild yeast in it, and it's not what you were looking for. Um, even even if the barrel is given to you for free or a discount, I probably wouldn't uh, wouldn't do that.
0: One thing I've heard out there is that the size of the barrel has a huge impact on the beer that you put into it. What kind of things could you tell us about that?
1: Some things to keep in mind when selecting a barrel are the size and the age of the barrel. Simply put, the smaller the barrel and the younger the barrel, the more flavor you're gonna get out of the barrel. Um, So you need to adjust your recipe for this, and there'll be more on that a little bit later in this guide. Uh, But with a younger 10-gallon barrel, you might want to build a thicker, stronger, more bitter base beer to stand up to the barrel. Conversely, if you get you know a 15-year-old full-size 53-gallon barrel, a very large barrel, um, you may want to go with something that will allow the intricacies and the deep flavors built up over time from a full-size barrel that has had spirits in there for you know 15 years um, to really shine. So that's kind of the extreme end of each one, but that's something you want to keep in mind. Um, length of time in the barrel is going to matter. Um, the length of time you have the beer in the barrel is going to matter. I always recommend tasting your beer from time to time. Um, That ultimately is the best way to figure out if the beer is ready. It's kind of like cooking a dish. Uh, The recipe might say something like two tablespoons of salt, but at the end of the day you'd probably put in a tablespoon at most and then you'll salt to taste. Um, It's kind of the same way with barrels. I might tell you a barrel should probably stay in, the beer should stay in there for maybe eight months, but you know, around five months you should start tasting it, and maybe it'll be ready in six months, maybe it'll be ready in 12 months. Um, you know, this is just kind of a guide. Uh, the Vinny nail method works really well. Um, that's where you hammer a nail in, you pull the nail out. You know, pulling nails is a big term used in barrel beers. You pull the nail out, and the beer, um, a little tiny nail, and the beer um, pours slowly into the glass, and then you pound it, sanitize the nail, and pound it back in. Um, just Google Vinny nail method. Um, Vinny from Russian River uh, made it famous. Uh, but that's a great way to do it. Um, you can also use a thief. Um, a wine thief, they call it usually, or a barrel thief. Uh, many people have these already. Um, a bit of oxidation in the, uh, isn't the end of the world for most of these beers, but you really want to minimize oxidation when taking samples um, because you're already getting oxidation through the wood. You know, the barrels; it's the beer is sitting there through the barrel, and the wood is breathing, and you're getting oxidation already. Um, so I try not to add any more oxidation than necessary to it. Um, I've, I have had beers, um, different types of beers that were purposely over oxygenated, um, but that's something that I don't have a lot of experience in, and it's not um, that people do it to speed up the aging. Um, they do that with wine as well, I believe, a lot of times as, or sometimes as well. Uh, but that's not something I have experience with, and that's not usually what you're going for when you're building a barrel aged beer um, with these methods. Um, give you a few examples of some experience on time in a barrel um, that I've had. Um, Last few years I had a 10 gallon very fresh local whiskey barrel. Um, I filled the beer the same day they emptied it. Um, The whiskey there is turned over in eight months or less and they also add additional spirals, aspen aspen wood spirals, into the barrel so that it gets even more oak character faster. Um, It's basically as fast of a whiskey as you'll find. and the whiskey sells for like 60 bucks too. It's pretty crazy. It's good whiskey though. So the barrels, they have very strong raw flavors. And I put a huge stout recipe into the barrel for about seven months, give or take. Um, and honestly it was, it was probably about a 13 and percent big thick barrel aged stout, like 65, 70% base malt, the rest were adjunct malts, a lot of oats, uh really thick, heavy stout. And honestly, it was in there for about seven months, and I would not have minded if I'd taken out a month or two sooner. Um, it was very good; it was very boozy, but you just get a lot of raw oak and whiskey character when whiskey's only been in a barrel, especially only a ten gallon, a small size barrel, uh, for a short amount of time. <clears throat> uh, another one of my friends got a barrel, uh, the same bar- same uh, same distillery. I picked up several barrels when I went there. Um, one of my friends bought one of the barrels, and he has done five different beers in those barrels, slowly going down in strength over time, and they all have whiskey character, which is rare. Usually a 53-gallon barrel, you only get you know maybe two uses out of it. A lot of breweries only use it once for stouts. Um, I found you can make more subtle beers, you know, 8% Imperial Browns, Porters, those kind of beers, Baltic Porters, you can put those in second use and still get some really good uh, wood and whiskey flavor from them. Uh, but my friend, yeah, five uses, and... I just drank the fifth one a few months ago. It was an Imperial Marzin, and honestly, it was incredible. <laughs> uh, it, it was really good. The Marzin, the malty Marzin was just, it worked really well with what was uh, shockingly still whiskey in that barrel after five five tries. Um, on the other end of the scale, a couple years back, a friend of mine had a 53-gallon Woodford rye barrel. Uh, and the rye whiskey, I think, for Woodford sits in there for over four years. Um, so a decent, solid amount of time, what you'd expect from Kentucky classic whiskey. But 53 gallon barrel, so it's normal size, it's huge. Um, the first use we did a lighter beer, a rye barley wine, probably 8.5% ABV roughly. And it stayed in there for like a year and a half, and it came out really well. Um, maybe a touch on the boozy side, but I mean it was within the range of acceptable, and it was quite good when it came out, and uh, it's only, it's only gotten better. Um second use, we did a rye porter around 8% ABV. It was in there about a year. came out really nice and balanced. Um, and there was not, we just really didn't think there'd be enough flavor for a third use. So we just ended the barrel project there. Um, and that's more typical, I think, of what a commercial brewery would probably do. But with these 10 gallon barrels, especially if you can get them really fresh, you're gonna get some strong flavors and um, you can use them multiple times. So just really think on both ends of the scale there. 53 versus 10 gallon, Um, and remember I can reference these examples, the things that I have done to give you an idea, Uh, but at the end of the day I can't stress enough on how you need to just taste it along the way, and you just need to figure out how it's tasting to you. Um, Also people have different tastes. Some people drink whiskey straight all the time and they want that flavor in their beer. Other people just want a hint of it, Um, and then most of us are somewhere in between that I would say, but it's, um, it's your beer, or if you brew it with a couple of friends, it's collectively your beers, so get in there, sample it, and uh, decide when it's ready. Um, one, one other thing I will add, that um, I think size matters a little bit more than length of time that the spirits have been in the barrel, but they're both important variables. Um, but Size is definitely very important, uh, and I don't really like using anything below a 10 gallon size for beer, um, I just think it turns over way too quickly, um, too much surface area. So if you found access to like a three-gallon barrel, um, it might be cool to put something else like a port wine in it or some kind of uh, distilled alcohol or something like that. But um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really want to use a three-gallon barrel for a beer. Um, it's just going to get, I think, too woody, too quick. And even if the first one comes out, it's going really, to be really fast, and you're going to have to keep turning it over time after time. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend like 10 to 15-gallon barrels, 10 to 20-gallon barrels in general.
0: Earlier, you talked about oak alternatives. What do you mean by that?
1: There are alternatives to barrels that um, commercial breweries don't use too often, but they do use them sometimes. Uh, But homebrewers use them all the time. And I think when used properly, they can uh, present massive advantages to the homebrewer just because 53 gallon barrels aren't usually the best choice for a homebrewer, I would say. For barrel alternatives you know most people just use some oak chips cubes or spirals and call it a day Um, those can provide fun flavors um, oak type flavors and specific beer types like belgian quads for example but we can do a lot better when it comes to beers like imperial stouts Um, you can't replicate the flavor of a big barrel without some modifications and i'm just going to use barrel aged imperial stouts as an example here Um, if you want to make a beer that is like a barrel-aged imperial stout and using oak alternatives, um, you've got to ask yourself what types of flavors are in a barrel-aged stout. Um, And let's split that up and just tackle it one at a time. The first thing that people overlook as almost universally in the homebrew world is you have a base beer that has sat in a barrel for 8 to 18 months for most of the commercial imperial barrel-aged stouts. Uh, That base beer is going to have a lot of aged flavors because it's been in there a long time. Um, most of these oak alternatives only take two to eight weeks to really add flavor to your beer. So even if you nail the oak and the whiskey part of the barrel aged beer, you're still left with like a two-month-old imperial stout with all of those rougher edges and immature flavors. Um, so what people, what I think people should consider doing, and I've done it several times to great, with great results, um, is you big brew a big imperial stout and you let it sit, um, preferably in something like a glass container preferably at cellar temperatures of, you know, 50 to 65 degrees, racked off of the yeast um, for at least six months before you add your oak. And this is going to help you better replicate the mature cellared flavors that you see in those commercial barrel-aged stouts that are going to be eight-plus months old when you drink them in the bottle. And I really almost never see anybody do this uh, at the homebrew level. It's almost always brew a beer, wait four to six weeks, add oak for four to six more weeks bottle cellar um yeah your beer can change over time in the bottle especially if you do auto condition it which again is not always practical when you're making a huge beer um in a barrel but it's not going to change nearly as much as when it's sitting in a barrel or in the glass like that pre-carbonation pre-cold storage still a little bit of yeast and suspension doing its magic um so definitely consider brewing a base beer and sitting for a while and this also helps when you're picking a barrel out too so that way you have a beer that's sitting there and maybe after it's been sitting there for four months you start searching for your whiskey barrel um or you've added some oak some uh, wood chips to some whiskey and you're letting those sit and just soak in the flavors of the whiskey um so just brewing a a beer first um and when i'm talking about barrel i'm talking about a small barrel because it'll turn over quicker but brewing your beer base beer first so it's ready to go um and it has some of that aged flavor when you actually add it into your wood uh can be super helpful in replicating what you know the pros do replicating some of your favorite beers um the second the second component of a barrel aged stout is barrel flavor um whiskey barrels use charred american oak the charred part is really important when you throw in regular toasted oak spirals or cubes into your beer you're not going to get those charred flavors that you'd expect to get in a barrel so you really need to char your oak um if you have the book Wood and some of the other books, they talk about toasting it in the oven, and you can replicate some of these flavors by going several hundred degrees for a certain amount of time in your oven. Um, that wood, you can get some of those vanilla flavors, you can get some of those different types of flavors that come out. But I personally prefer just a straight-up char it. If you watch those videos when they're taking American bar- uh, American oak barrels and they're charring them for use in whiskey, I mean, they they basically have like a full... It's, it's like a flamethrower, almost like a massive torch. Um, so I like to just torch my wood. It's very easy. You can just get a cheap torch, like a soldering torch from the hardware store. You don't have to get anything expensive and just straight up char the oak. Um, after I char the oak, I soak it in some boiling water for a little bit, help leach out some of that the harsher flavors in the charring process. Um, but then you can just soak them in whiskey and there you go. You, you basically you are doing what the distilleries are doing, more or less. Um, I actually use barrel chips a lot of times. Um, there's these chips by Jack Daniels. They're Jack Daniels smoking chips. You see them at the grocery and the hardware stores in the smoking section um, where you find charcoal. They're super cheap. They come in a big bag, and they're actual charred pieces of whiskey barrel. I mean, they're just it's just uh, chopped up whiskey barrels that are. the use is supposed to be for smoking them to get that kind of whiskey oak flavor in your food. Uh, but it's the right flavor for... Barrel and a barrel-aged wood alternative. So um, I try them a little further because you're getting parts of the barrel that aren't in contact with actual whiskey. You know, if you if you re, if you put the barrel back together, the whiskey is in contact with the charred part of the barrel. And when you have these Jack Daniels smoking chips, if you look at the chips, I don't know, maybe half of them are charred and the other half aren't. So I mean, oak wood is actually pretty thick. Um, so you're getting some of the wood that the whiskey doesn't come into contact with. So I think, long story short, I think a smaller percentage of the Jack Daniels chips are uh, as charred as they would be if you were using an actual barrel. So I char them further, put them in some boiling water to get rid of some astringency, take them out, soak them in some whiskey. Um, and I think that really replicates the barrel flavor well. But the point of this section is if you want that barrel flavor of a barrel-aged imperial stout and you're using oak alternatives, you need to char your oak. Um, toasted oak stout isn't going to taste like a barrel aged stout Uh, the other component is the whiskey flavor Um, a lot of people buy a cheap bottle of bourbon or rye toss it in with their chips and call it a day Um, that's easy, it works just fine, but we can do a little bit better Um, you have to think about when whiskey goes into a barrel, it's at a higher alcohol than the finished product, a higher ABV than the finished product. Um, it's anywhere from like the low 100s to like 125 proof. But whiskey's bottled at 80 to 90 proof, so it's watered down into the bottle. Um, so there's a real difference in strength of the whiskey in the barrel, thus the whiskey that a barrel-aged beer is going to come into contact with um, and flavor versus what you get out of a bottle or what you get out of the average 80 to 90 proof bottle. So um I like to use 100 proof, 110 proof, 120 proof whiskeys when I'm soaking them in oak chips cuz I think it better replicates those strong primary flavors that you're going to get um that you're going to get from like a barrel aged out. Um You know, if you know your whiskey, I wouldn't necessarily pick your favorite bourbon or rye for this. Again, you have to think in this use, you have to think the whiskey is like another ingredient in the beer. Um, more like a cocktail. So if you find, if you have whiskey that you really like for cocktails, which is usually a fairly good flavored whiskey, but maybe it's lacking some subtleties, but it has really good, strong primary flavors. You want something like that. It has a strong backbone, good primary flavor. Um, those secondary flavors, the deep complexity that you get from some of those high end whiskeys when you drink straight, it's going to probably be lost amongst all the flavors from the wood and the base beer. Um, if you don't know a lot about whiskey, just Google terms like best barrel strength bourbon or rye whiskey for cocktails uh, and you'll start get li- start to get lists. Cocktail bars or home cocktail um, aficionados are usually using value whiskey, value rye, value bourbon. Um, they're not sticking their nose up at a $30 bottle. They're looking for that $20 to $30 bottle that is going to work great for cocktails. Um, so you'll find more affordable bottles that way. I'll give you guys some examples of things that I've used to great success. Um, Rittenhouse Rye, 100 proof, that one is great, uh, fantastic rye, very affordable, Bullet Barrel Strength is 119 proof, great bourbon to use for this this uh, this particular exercise, um, Jim Beam Bottled and Bond, 100 proof, I hate regular Jim Beam, um, I just don't like the flavor of it, but the Bottled and Bond seems to work really well in cocktails, um, and I actually... First time I had it was at a uh, cocktail bar, and I was like, what is this uh, whiskey? And they told me, Jim Beam, Bottled and Bond. I've had it several times since, and I've used it um, in some beers, and it's worked out really well. Uh, George Dickel is a really good value brand. They have various ones that are 100-plus proof. Uh, Maker's Cask Strength, I think it might be a little more expensive these days. I haven't had it in years, but that's 111 proof. Uh, Old Forester Rye, 100 proof, it's a good one. Wild Turkey 101, you should be able to get a good price on that. Old Grandad has a bunch of uh, high proof stuff. Um, look out for some of those, those work well. Um, I think this one might be a little expensive these days too. Seventeen ninety two full proof is $125 proof. Um, if that's affordable, that'd be a great one to use as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those are some bottles you can look for and depending on where you live, you'll have different types of bottles available to you. Uh, sometimes you're not going to get enough whiskey flavor in the final product by adding whiskey soaked oak. Um, You can add some whiskey, probably two to four ounces at a time, depending on how far off it is per five gallons to your fermenter or keg. Um, This is something that commercial breweries literally cannot do because it's illegal for them, but home brewers can absolutely do it. So if you don't have enough whiskey flavor at the end with your whiskey soaked oak chips, you know, go ahead and add two ounces. Um, If you still don't have enough, add another two ounces. I've heard of people putting you know, 8, 12, 14 ounces of uh, whiskey into their 5-gallon batch of uh, of stout. Again, it depends on how much whiskey you like in your stout. But, um, yeah, you can always add a little whiskey to taste if you think it's lacking.
0: Yeah, awesome. These are some really great tips. Do, do you have any other kind of tips and tricks that you might recommend for someone?
1: Angel Share. Uh, so Angel Share in brewing is basically – making enough beers so that as some dissipates over time in the barrel, you can top off your barrel with that fresh beer from the same same base, um, and the goal is to keep oxygen out. I used to do this all the time, but I don't really bother anymore. Um, I don't like unnecessarily opening up barrels, nor do I like risking a new product contaminating an entire batch, and while I don't think the risk is very high for either of those things, I don't really see any major advantages to topping your barrel off, so I don't really spend my time and energy doing this. Um, If I make more beer than the barrel can handle, I usually just bottle it up, drink it side by side with the barrel in the future, and uh, just compare it, um, compare it, the base beer versus the uh, barrel beer, and see the differences. Um, I find that a lot more interesting and rewarding to do than uh, just putting all your beer into an angel share um, and risking, even if it's a minor risk, risking those things. people might say your beer might oxidize too much but really i mean i live in colorado it's very dry here we see our uh... barrels lose more more base beer in them on average i think than a more humid environment probably would but it's still not a problem you know i'm using ten gallon barrels a lot of times so i'm not going to have a beer in there for two years um, to wear a lot it's going to dry up so i'm not too worried about angel share um, and i don't think most homebrewers should be either um, yeah, so storing storing the barrel is another thing I have written down here. Um, I've always built stands, usually for most of my small barrels. Uh, it's super easy to do out of wood. You can just Google building a barrel stand if you want. Um, if you're comfortable with basic woodworking tools, you could probably just figure it out for yourself. It's very easy to do in different ways. Um, yeah, I mean there's all sorts of ways to do that. But I put a little stand on there because while a barrel will sit filled without rolling. If you knock into it, it could easily tip over and you don't want that. Um, I like to keep it, this is a little more important to the actual final product, I like to keep it in a place where it has some temperature fluctuations if possible, um, it lets the wood breathe. Um, I got that tip from uh, a friend that used to work at a, uh, a major brewery that had a little offshoot that had some awesome barrel aged beers and it's a tip that he picked up there. Um, but their best barrels would always sit in this area that would be like 55 to like 85 degrees. It would change throughout the year and sometimes throughout the day. Um, I'd usually target like 55, 70 degrees, something like that. So if you have uh, a part of the house that gets hotter and colder, go ahead and throw it in there. Um, but otherwise, you know, just looking, just looking at 55, 60, 65, 70 degrees, that's fine. Um, you don't, you don't need huge temperature swings, but it's, it's cool to have those high temperatures, those huge temperature swings. I know the distilleries like to do that. Um, and for the same reason, I heard this The brewer said the said he likes to do it for the same reason. It just lets the barrel breathe. The wood expands and contracts and the beer goes in and out of it and adds complexity and flavor. Um, I don't know how big of an impact it really is, but it's something I try to do whenever possible. Um, and I have had the same base beer in the same two barrels stacked on top of each other at commercial breweries. It just tastes completely different, and that's just a small, it should just be a small change in temperature, a small difference in barrel, even though it's the same whiskey, uh, base whiskey and charred barrel. Um, so I think there is some merit to it, and I would recommend it if possible. Um, well, your barrel is not really subject to light. Like your beer is not going to get light struck by sitting there. I would still keep the barrel out of the sun. <laughs> um, I'd keep, I'd definitely keep it away from a place where like kids or animals could mess with the bung. I've heard stories of local breweries that have had their barrels sitting in tap rooms, at least two different local breweries. I've heard the stories from, um, here in Colorado, but, um, they had kids mess with their bungs or outlets and they ended up having to dump a whole barrel of beer. Um, So, I mean, the last thing you want is, you know, your dog runs into the the spigot or something and the beer just goes everywhere, Um, or, you know, your kid is, you know, pulls out the bung and starts throwing toys in your beer and it gets infected. So, put it somewhere where someone's not going to mess around with it, Um, and it should be in pretty good shape. Uh, Some other tips, uh, blending. Blending is something that commercial barrel programs do all the time. Um, they blend beer in different barrels to achieve the final product that they want. So if you have, you know, you know, I don't know for sure if this brewery does it. I'm just going to use, you know, Epic's Big Bad Baptist, for example. Um, in the cases where you have a beer like that, or, you know, Great Divide Yeti, um, things like that, um, oftentimes like Well Works Medianoche, things like that, they'll have multiple barrels and they will taste the barrels, multiple barrels with the same base beer in it they'll taste it and then they'll blend it back um, you can go one step further like Side Project does and they'll have 8 or 10 different uh, different base beers in different barrels and they'll try them all and blend them to achieve a certain flavor um, so you can you can do that at home um, it's not that hard depending on how big of a batch you're doing but you can replicate at home a few different ways um, you can kind of um Brew a few different. Sorry, brew a few different uh, batches of base beers, age them in different whiskey-soaked oaks, taste them, and then blend to taste. Um, oftentimes, I think you're going to pick up more subtle but clear differences, um, and you can do a lot of fun stuff with that. You know, you might have something that's a little more bitter that you think is going to go super well with some coffee or, you know, something where the vanilla of the oak is really plain or the vanilla of the whiskey is really plain well and you want to just highlight that and add some vanilla beans. Um, You know, cacao nibs can work well for certain ones. You get chocolate flavors in some of these. So you make different base stouts and put them in different oaks and uh, blend them together. I've done it with two 10-gallon batches of beer as well, and I've even done, you know, two or three different base stouts Blend them together, put them in a ten-gallon whiskey barrel, um, and then you know you just you get some added complexity. And I think it takes the edge off a little bit. When I drink whiskey with whiskey friends, they're they're really all about these like single barrel store picks and single barrel examples all the time. And I find those can be fun, but they're always so much more raw and unrefined. I really like the blended, you know, like the regular whiskey where you're taking the distillers going around and picking 20, 30, 40 barrels. Sampling them all, mixing those together, tasting the final final product, making sure it's to his specific uh, his specifications, and like you get a really smoother, balanced, more rounded. I don't, I don't know. It's more refined to me. I like those. I like that a little bit better. So I do. I have had great success blending um, blending stouts in particular uh, from different barrels or different oaks when I have the time to do it um, and the resources. So I would definitely. Um, recommend that. Another type of blending that I do, um, and this is more of like safety blending I guess you could call it, uh, is I like to keep extra base beer when I'm doing an oak beer or or adjuncting a beer. So basically it's insurance, Um, if I over oak a beer too much, say I take a, say I want to do I put, I do a five gallon batch of Russian Imperial Stout, and I want to put it in some whiskey-soaked oak. So maybe I'll put four gallons in whiskey-soaked oak. And if I over oak it, I can always add a gallon of that extra gallon that I didn't oak back into it, just to blend it back to the flavor I need. Um, so I don't usually do that with oak anymore, because I don't usually over oak anything. But I do it a lot with adjuncts. Um, I do it a lot, especially when I'm using an adjunct for the first time. So if I'm using something different, like a, uh, you know, one example might be um, some bark from a tree, some like birch bark. You know, I've never used birch bark before, so I'm going to put birch bark in it. Recommending examples from my from uh, reading books and from other people's uh, own experience, but sometimes it's going to be harsher than you want, and you might need to blend it back a little bit. Um, So I think keeping around 20 25% of your base beer, maybe more depending on uh, what you're doing, holding it back is a good idea. Um, You can also do something like make five gallons of Russian Imperial Stout, take two and a half gallons and put it in one oak, and if you got it right and you didn't over-oak it, take the other two and a half and put vanilla beans on it, uh, put a different type of, uh, wood on it. You know, you can use different types of wood. You can do all sorts of fun things. Um, so you can hold back even 50% of your beer as insurance. And as soon as you know that your first, uh, adjunct or oaked beer is in the clear, you can do something with that second half. Um, that's another method that I've done before. Uh, let's talk a little bit about wine barrels. Um, Wine barrels are toasted, not charred, so you get more of that tannic, less intense vanilla but, um, and wood-flavored character when using them. The same tips on selecting the right size and aged barrel apply when you're using wine as you would with whiskey, um, but your base beers are probably going to be a little different with wine for the most part. Um, personally, I'm partial to like a wine barrel quad or an Imperial Belgian saison, like a red wine barrel. Um, those are more things I think about with red wine, but you can do all sorts of stuff. I mean... Talking about you're talking about wine, chocolate, and fruit pairing well well together. You know you can do a raspberry stout in a wine barrel. You can do a straight Russian Imperial Stout in a wine barrel. Um, so you can do anything really, but it's just those the Belgian Saisons, the big Belgian Saisons, and the uh, and the Quads are ones that really jump out to me when I'm thinking of a wine barrel. Um, you can also do oak chips, cubes, and spirals soaked in wine. That can be useful. Port wine in particular is a lot of fun. It has strong, deep flavors that can resonate well and all sorts of high alcohol beers Um, so i really like that a lot Um, speaking of oak chips cubes spirals um, staves um, the differences between them um, i will say that cubes i think are a little less deep and dynamic Uh, it's hard to say cubes are used a lot in the winemaking world the the home winemaking world but they're kind of looked down upon in the home st- uh, spirits distilling world a little bit because I just don't think they provide the complexity you want. You get some of that tannic flavor, but it's not the wood isn't very complex. So I usually don't use cubes too much when uh, when I'm doing um, you know oaked beers. Uh, oak chips are good it has a higher surface area it turns around quicker but I think it provides complexity the spirals are great uh, Oak spirals are good and I've had I've only used staves a few times but I've had good luck with the staves There's all sorts of crazy oak alternatives going on now um, If you're unsure about one just google around read reviews see what people think see what people compare it to I would say uh, Where can you find fresh barrels? I like to go straight to the distilleries um, I'll ask other homebrewers if I know they've had barrels um, or just in big groups, like places where you can reach a lot of people without a lot of effort, Um, you know, website forums, homebrew club email lists, Facebook groups, you know, just ask like, hey, does anyone know where I can get a 10, freshly dumped 10 gallon, 20 gallon barrel? Um, It can be a little difficult to source fresh barrels for the sizes you want, but it's really worth doing that extra research and detective work. Uh, Price wise, you know, it is March, 2020, I usually pay, you know, prices can change over time, but I usually pay 75 to 100 bucks for a freshly dumped 10 to 20 gallon barrel. Uh, Maybe 100, 150 bucks for a freshly dumped 53 gallon barrel. Um, It's easier to find 53 gallon barrels because more distilleries use those, but you need a larger group to fill it. And it only takes one brewer with poor brewing practices that can ruin an entire batch with a funky base beer. And you can't always taste a wild yeast in a beer that was just brewed I mean I've had that happen before like literally we start. I mean <laughs> we started doing barrel projects you know maybe like 10 years ago 8 years ago and you'd have a group of 10 people and you just everyone had their beer and you just dump it in the barrel and then you know you wait like 10-12 months and you try the beer and it's like oh okay it has a pellicle on it it went wild it went funky that's not what you're looking for so then we're like alright we're gonna taste everyone's beer beforehand we have plenty of judges in our group we can all taste it and if there's something bad in it, we just won't let someone dump their beer in it. And you know, that works a little better, but we've still had times where eight of us have gotten together and dumped beer into a 53-gallon batch, and every base beer tasted good. But you know what, at the end of the day, we had a pellicle again eight to twelve months later. Um, So I really prefer 10 to 20-gallon fresh barrels with one or two other people that I know can brew reliable, high-quality beer. Um, that's that's what I look for when I'm doing barrel projects with friends. The 53 gallon barrels are great, but it's really a format that I think works much better for a commercial brewery. Um, I'm also not a guy that wants to drink 53 gallons of my own beer. If I'm going to drink 53 gallons, I don't know how long that takes, if it's 6 months, 12 months, or you know, 3 years, but I don't want to drink the same barrel aged beer for that long. I like to do smaller projects, split things up, get 2.5 to 5 gallons of something really nice. And enjoy it over the next few years, um, crack it open with friends, becomes a little more special that way. Um, another way to find out which distilleries sell small barrels, outside of you know Facebook messaging them all, which is a fine strategy in your area, um, you can look and see which beers have won local contests in the barrel age category, at like a homebrew contest. Um, they're frequently named after the barrels that those beers were in. Um, you can check out barrel brokers, Rocky Mountain Barrels. Is out here by me they're fantastic and easy to communicate with um, so you can talk to them about where to get fresh 10 to 20 gallon barrels you can ask them if they have any in or what they last had in you know things like that um, for wine barrels I found it's generally easier I haven't done as many wine barrel projects but a lot of my friends have and the ones that I've participated in it's, it's been a lot easier to get the barrels they're not in as high of demand in fact you can frequently find them used as, like, garden planters and things like that. They usually sell them for those purposes. But, you know, most states across the U.S. have their little wine region. For me, it's the western slope of Colorado. Um, but most states have a wine region. And, again, it's just like whiskey. You're not necessarily looking for the most refined, complex wine. You're looking for something that has a good flavor that's going to match the base beer that you built for it. Um, so, And they often use smaller barrels at those wineries. So 10 to 20-gallon barrels can be found for sure. Um, in the smaller sizes, other spirits like rum can, it's, rum is like medium difficult to find. Gin is pretty difficult to source, but it's extremely rewarding if you can find a 10 or 20 gallon gin barrel. Um, brandy, I'd look at brandy. Brandy's a little tougher because you can't find it as frequently in the States. I think brandy's a much more European thing. Um, you know, and everything that goes along with brandy, you know, cognac, calvados, all those kind of things. Um... But you know, applejack, apple brandy—you can find some of that stuff in the U.S. Um, brandy in general is getting a little bit more popular. So look for a brandy barrel if you can; those are fun. Um, scotch would be really hard to find, especially in a smaller format. But um, if Scotch is your thing, like you know, I, I'd probably just use a little bit of—you don't want a lot of wood when you're using Scotch, probably. Um, because scotch is usually a second I mean second use from bourbon barrels, they send it over, take a bourbon barrel and you send it over and they put scotch in it. So you don't necessarily need to use a lot of wood character for those. Um, just using an actual scotch would probably work well, like a Laphroaig or something like that. Uh, beer type versus barrel type, um, honestly the possibilities are endless. I don't think you should have hard and fast rules when you're doing a beer type versus a barrel type. 10 years ago, I think a lot of people might've said, yeah, you're gonna use whiskey or you're using a stout. And they'd be like, port wine and a stout? That's silly, but you know, I've had awesome port, barrel, port wine barrel aged uh, stouts. So I don't think there's any sort of hard and fast rule anymore. I think you just look for inspiration. You have something that works and you want to maybe make something in the same vein of it. Um, you look at some flavors of some spirits that you've had, maybe something you've had that's really strong like a shot of something, or just a straight glass of a whiskey, or just a really exotic spirit, maybe, or a certain type of tequila, or something like that. And you're like, wow, this is really good. It's a little strong, but you know what? I think this could play really well in this type of beer. And then you start to build that kind of a base beer. Um, if you need inspiration, the Big Beers, Belgians and Barley Wines Festival every year in Breckenridge. Um, their tap list is on their website. Uh, many of the breweries showcase super interesting barrel and beer combinations each year there, so you can find some inspiration there. Um, Either on the app or on their website, the Great American Beer Fest, if you can filter for barrel-aged beers, there's a whole ton of weird, wacky stuff that goes on there. That could be fun for another fun resource for inspiration. Um, A few of my favorite non-standard combinations that I've done. um, A 13.5% English barley wine aged in a local gin barrel for eight-ish months and then bottle-conditioned. Um right after we made that, it's about five years ago, uh we entered it into two different competitions and it came back with two medals. It's a super interesting and complex beer, and the gin just really made the base beer shine. Um the malt and the gin just played so well together. It's about five years old now, drinks really well. Um carbonation's really died down, but that's a fantastic one. Uh another fun one was this lightly hopped wheat wine. It was kind of similar to Boulevard's um Harvest Dancer wheat wine. We aged it. Uh, in some white ash wood spirals that had soaked in some local pear brandy. Um, that was super interesting, complex beer. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. We had a small batch of that, so uh, it was not entered into any competitions and uh, rarely made it outside of uh, my house. <laughs> I enjoyed quite a few of those small bottles. Um, and then one other source of inspiration, a recent one that I did uh, was a blend. Had a big, like, 14% alcohol, blend of stouts, and different whiskey barrels, and I used that as 66% of the beer, the base, and then 33% of the base was a cherry port wine that I made from scratch by collecting, uh, collecting juicing and fermenting cherries off of several local trees, and then I fortified that cherry wine with neutral grain spirits and aged some of it in a tiny half-gallon port barrel um, that I sometimes use for wine or spirits. Um, so it's over half beer, so it is a beer, so it's you know two-thirds the stout and one-third the cherry port wine um i called it cherry stout line i believe and uh it clocked in at just under 16 percent alcohol it won a medal at big beers this year in the experimental category and it was just a super fun and interesting interesting beer um i was really i really enjoyed that one so yeah for inspiration just look around see what you have um you can do all sorts of fun things it's it's a great time to get creative um for that um heavy toasted oak or toasted oak. Um, I want to add my two cents on heavy oak. I don't like heavy oak. have used it twice. I think it's way too heavy of a flavor. Maybe there's a use for it, but I've never had a beer that stood up well, to heavy oak. Um, I think the heavy oak dominates with one strong note. Um, I, I used it once in a quad, and honestly, we, it really highlighted the phenolics for a while. It just, we thought it had like a phenol infection. And then over time, it was like, oh yeah, we used a lot of heavy oak on this beer. And uh, it started to fade enough to where we knew it was oak, but it was just too strong in one note. Um, if, if anyone out there's made a good beer with heavy oak, um, I'd be curious to hear about it. Uh, I, I'm wondering uh, what beer that is. Um, I'd say medium toasted oak is probably a good place to start for your toasting level. French is a little more subtle. Hungarian is supposed to be between American and French in subtlety, but I've never used Hungarian, so I'm not sure. Um, ultimately, the subtle flavors of toasted oak are going to matter a lot more when you're not charring them. Um, so, if you're doing like a, especially if you're using like a farmhouse ale or, you know, like a Saison, that kind of thing. Um, but you'll still taste the difference um, if you just throw medium plus and medium oak in a split batch um, without charring it. In, or with charring it and putting it in a stout you can still taste the difference I think uh, but I would start at medium and then determine your level but believe me I wouldn't am <laughs> just giving you a warning don't go, go don't go with heavy oak uh, unless you, you just really want to play with uh, play with fire I would say
0: what about tips for building barrel aged beer recipes
1: the number one thing I found over the years is that you really need a bigger oftentimes times hoppier beer to stand up to your barrel and the age um, aging the beer in a barrel over time will really thin the beer out and the hops will fade a little bit. Um, so you, I think you really need a bigger mouthfeel and some bitterness to stand up to, uh, to the age and to the whiskey. Um, using grain bills with a larger percentage of oats, a larger percentage of adjuncts is a great way to start and kind of achieve that. Um, here's an example grain bill for a... Roughly 13% ABV imperial stout that's built for sitting in a barrel or sitting in glass until it's ready to be oaked for about six months or more. Uh, It's a really big bodied, smooth, chocolate layered stout with enough roast and coffee kind of flavors to still be considered a stout. Um, Use these grain percentages, um, using these grain percentages you want to create a starting gravity of about 1.12 or 1.13. This should get you, after fermentation is completed, somewhere around the 12 to 13.5% alcohol range that you want, maybe a little higher. Um, it really depends on the yeast strain. But uh, the whiskey in, in the barrel or the oak, sh- uh, oak alternative should really end up bumping this into the 13 to 15% ABV range for your final product. Um, so base recipe, I'm just going to use percentages for you, you're going to have to plug it in for your own system, but um, 50% two-row, you know, any American brand will work for two-row. This just gives you a clean, fermentable base. Um, I've used Golden Promise, I've used Maris Otter. I've heard some brewers say that Maris Otter has a little fruity flavor over time, but um, as it ages, I'm not sure I've picked up that subtlety, but I've also not used Maris Otter in a massive stout enough times to really say so. Um, Golden Promise would work, but honestly, two-row is perfectly fine. So 50% two-row we're going to go with. Um, 15% light Munich malt, Wireman is my favorite, but you can really use anything here as long as it can be converted, so don't use a super dark Munich malt because it might not convert and then you'll have a little more adjunct uh, malts than you'd want here. So 50% two-row, 50% light Munich malt. 50% 50% too rough, 15% light Munich malt, 15% flaked oats, this is for that luscious, smooth, creamy mouthfeel, um, 5% medium crystal, uh, I like the English ones, Simpsons I have a bag of right now, but uh, anything anything will do there, any sort of crystal, medium crystal, you know, 40, 50, 60 L should work fine, um, 5% of your favorite chocolate malts or chocolate malts here, um, so You could do 3% of one, 2% of another, 5% of one, whatever, just 5% total in this recipe. Um, These can vary a ton, I like to taste test them. Luckily, I have a homebrew shop that allows me to taste the different malts. Um, They usually have six or eight chocolate malts in stock. So, you know, do some tasting of the malts and see what flavors you like, or... If you don't have the ability to taste, um, do some reading on the uh, notes of each one, tasting notes from people. There's a lot of tasting notes out there on different malts. Chocolate rye is great here, too. Go right ahead if you want. Uh, I love chocolate rye. So um, 5% of your favorite chocolate malt or malts. 4% of Carafa 2, however you want to say it. Um, This should add some more chocolate notes and depth to the beer. 4% roasted barley. Personally use the English ones usually, but anything that you like or have access to is perfectly fine and then 2% black patent malts, any type I should go for the darkest ones just to keep the stout looking as dark as possible Um, but again 2% black patent malt that should round you up to a 100% base malt Um, and that's a really good solid malt that I think can stand up to a lot of barrel aging Um, I would mash in 150-155 as far as hops go you probably want to use 45 to 55 IBUs of a fairly neutral hop at 60 minutes in the boil. Um, I like Magnum a lot. My friend Nathan grows them in his backyard, so we have access to them a lot of times. Um, or we'll buy them. Um, Magnum is super clean and high high alpha acids. Uh, we've had great success with Columbus and even Willamette as well. Um, you know, they're the hops that are going to do a good job bittering and they're going to go well with the flavors of the stout um, without detracting too much. You know, you don't want to throw like... You know, 50 IBUs of Citra in there, that those fruity flavors are going to really take away from what you're going for, for the most part. Um, and then I would take one of those three hops, or something like Kent Golding's even, uh, 10 IBUs worth at 15 minutes, um, you know, it gives a little, little extra bitterness and maybe a little flavor, a little, little, little bit extra, that addition is not that important, you can always go 50 to 60 to 70 IBUs in the bittering if you want, um, it's up to you. Um, I would ferment with USO5 usually, and just pitch like a shitload of USO5. Um, I use the Brewer's Friend calculator online, it's a free calculator, I like, I've had great success using it. Um, I set it for high gravity and dry yeast, and honestly, you end up using like four packets of dry USO5 in a five gallon batch. If you're using American Ale, Kylie Ale, um, make a huge starter, and use the Brewer's Friend to calculate that. Trust me, it's going to make your fermentations a lot cleaner and will completely ferment all the sugars you need there. You don't want a stuck fermentation, you don't want um, really stressed yeast flavors. You want clean yeast to ferment out so that you know all that dark luscious malt can shine in the beer uh, especially with the barrel and the whiskey. Um, if you do somehow get a stuck fermentation or you wanna do something higher than like 13.5% ABV, um, use a massive starter of WLP 099, that's the super high gravity yeast and you can pitch that. Um, another great way that I like to do sometimes is you make a baby beer, well baby as in like four to seven percent alcohol, Normal a normal strength beer, um, with your yeast USO5 or WLP 099 or something like that. Um, and then you just pitch your, you you make your table beer Ten days in when it's done fermenting, you pitch your big-ass beer directly onto that yeast cake. Um, and then you get a ton of fresh cells. Um, second generation, it's a great way to do it. Uh, ferment at 65, 66 degrees internal fermentation temperature. So that should be the inside of the beer's temperature while you're fermenting. So your fridge might need to get into the 50s to do that. You don't want these things fermenting in this mid to upper 70s. You're going to get a lot more of that fruity, estery flavor from the yeast, and you don't want that. Um, again, it detracts from the stout tasting like a clean chocolate roasted. You know, all those flavors get detracted from and muddled when you have a lot of fruit um, from the yeast. Um, so I'd keep it at 65, 66 for, I don't know, four to seven days until it's the fermentation's died down and it's less vigorous. vigorous and then uh, raise it up to 68 degrees for a few more weeks. You know, from when I pitch my yeast to when I rack it off, four to five weeks is usually fine. I know a lot of the old text says two weeks and you got to throw it in the secondary. It's not true. You're not going to get a bunch of nasty yeast flavors, auto stylists and stuff. You're not going to get that stuff if you leave your beer in the primary for four or five weeks. Um, you could get by with three weeks on these big beers if you check your gravity and confirm it's finished. But honestly, four or five weeks should be plenty of time. Um, and then I rack it off. I rack it into glass and then I'll hold it until it's ready to go in the barrel or until I want to add whiskey soaked oak chips um, or spirals or whatever. Um, I often do cold crash the beer before I rack it so if I ferment it for four or five weeks in the primary then cold crash it just to get anything extra that's floating kind of cleaned up there and then rack it into that glass Um, and then it's ready for the uh, the barrel or the, uh, the oak alternative. Um, so if anyone makes that beer, I have made this beer before, or something very similar, and I've also left a few things, uh, to your, uh, you know, I've I left a few things for you to choose in this, in this recipe, um, but if anyone makes it, I'm curious to see your results, and, uh, what you did or didn't like about it, um, uh, but I think that's a good, good base beer for you to start if you want to make a sort of big, thick, uh, russian imperial stout that can really stand up well to uh extended barrel beer barrel uh flavor um anyways good luck uh if you have any questions um especially if you're a patreon i'm happy to answer any of the questions in the uh the patreon uh coulter's patreon uh area cheers Mm -hmm.
0: like to thank ryan for taking the time to come on this week's show i know he took a lot of time out of his day to kind of help me record all of this and it was really really appreciated also love the plug for becoming a patron at the end there we do have a cool discord server and if you want to head over there and ask ryan any questions or me uh feel free other than that that's it for this week and we'll see you next week on homebrewing diy